Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we are bringing you another Seafood Career Pathways episode. A good one. You guys have shown us that you love these episodes. These episodes do really well. I think people enjoy hearing folks' stories and, uh, you know, the paths that they took to get to where they are now. And I'm sure that this is one that you've all been waiting for. We've been trying to get <laughs> George Chamberlain, president of GAA, former president of World Aquaculture Society, on the podcast since the beginning, but he's constantly traveling all over the world. And now he's stuck at home and we were able to nail down a recording time with him. So this is a fantastic episode. You guys are going to really enjoy it. George was amazing. Everything that he said is just really inspiring. And he had some really good little stories and anecdotes. So make sure you listen all the way through to the end and let us know what you think. And we will talk to you when it's over. Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. So when I was hired at GAA in 2015, fall of 2015, I had come from the biotech research world, not the seafood industry, even though I studied aquaculture, fishery tech in college. So GAA was really my first introduction into the seafood industry. And when I was hired in 2015, the person who hired me told me if there was a Mount Rushmore for seafood, two people that would be on that Mount Rushmore are Wally Stevens and George Chamberlain. And I don't know how you feel about that. But we are really happy to have George on the podcast today. And George, me and you have, you know, we've been working together for five years now. And um, I think we have a pretty good relationship. So I'm surprised that we haven't gotten you on earlier. <laughs> but president of GAA and whatever other title you want to give yourself, Jeff Peterson gave himself a title. <laughs> you can do that as well. Thank you for joining us and uh, welcome. Oh, thank you, Sean. And thank you, Justin and Maddie. And it's my pleasure to be here. And, and I guess my title would be, you know, the, the average guy. You know, I, I don't consider myself to be extraordinary really in anything. And I've, I've just been uh, very lucky to uh, sort of have maybe been in the right place at the right time, although maybe at the time it seemed like the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> That's how it works, right? Yeah. So let me, let me take you back. You know, I, I was born in Miami, Florida, and I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. I was one of six children. My family loved to go to the beach in the summers. Uh, I have nothing but fond memories of all of those trips to a very special place called Little Talbot Island, uh, north of Jacksonville, very isolated, very natural spot where you could walk for miles along the beach and, and probably see no one and see a lot of natural wildlife, uh, an occasional sea turtle, uh, wonderful fishing. And that was, um, that was my, my childhood and my adolescence. And just to give you a reference, during that time was when they had the Jacques Cousteau, you know, Adventures of the Undersea World series, you know, and, <laughs> and it was uh, fascinating for people of my generation. And then um, overlaying, overlaying that was the uh, concern about population growth. There was a guy named Paul Ehrlich who wrote a book in 1968 called The Population Bomb. And he 
predicted that there would be starvation in New York City by the year 2000. And no matter what we did, there was no way to avoid it. It was too late. The population was growing too fast. Food resources were being tapped out too quickly. And we were doomed to starve. Oh, that makes you feel good. And that was uh, during the time that I was going to high school and, uh, and uh, getting into my college career. And I began to think that putting all those pieces together, my love of the ocean, the Jacques Cousteau stuff, the starving world, the fact that our planet is covered with 70% water, why don't we do something with the oceans? Why don't I devote my career to the oceans? Wouldn't that be a fun thing to do? And it was just a dream world thing. And when I graduated, I didn't do that. I instead took the easy road. I took a, I applied for a civil service. Uh, I took a civil service exam down at the like county courthouse. And then I started getting postcards in the mail. You're qualified for this. You're qualified for that if you want to apply. And so I applied for a job at the health department of the state of Florida as a sanitarian. That meant that I collected water samples from municipal water treatment plants and swimming pools to make sure they were safe. And I was trained by some, uh, some retired uh, Navy guys who were working at the health department. And it was, uh, it was essentially like an audit, like uh, we do audits today of facilities. They were auditing water facilities and they went as slow as molasses. And, <laughs> Uh, with the board and and I just was bored to death. And when my shadow auditing time was over and I was set loose to do my own, wow, I raced through them. I did two or three times as many in a day. And the way it would work is you would come in in the morning, um, get your instructions, get your work list and take off in your own vehicle and do your stuff, collect all these water samples, drop them off to the lab in the afternoon. And after a few days, these guys told me, Chamberlain, you're, you're going too fast. Uh, you're, you're making us look bad. And I said, um, well, how many do you guys do? And whatever it was, it was less than half of what I did. And I said, well, gosh, I, I could do that in half a day. And they winked at me and they said, right. And then I began to realize that everybody was just working a half a day. <laughs> and I got corrupted in record time. I mean, in no time at all, I was just doing half a day's work. And one particular day at noon, I was seining fish with my brother, Fran, chasing a school of young jumping mullet up a salt marsh, charging through deep, thigh deep, uh, oozy mud, trying to pull the seine. And I slashed my, my shin on an oyster shell that cut deep into the periosteum, the lining of the bone and cut through some, some arterioles, little, little arter arteries in my, I was bleeding like a stuck pig. We'll make sure to share a picture of that in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> and my brother, Fran rushed me to the hospital and this physician stitched up the periosteum and he tied off these capillaries that were spurting blood. And then he tied off the skin and stitched me up and I, I was fine. And I reported for work the next day. Oh, and, and when I checked out of the hospital, they said, how do you want to pay for this, sir? And I said, 
I've got insurance. It was my first job. I had insurance. So I used the insurance. And the next day, my boss called me in at the health department and said, Chamberlain, what's this um, insurance thing? Is this, um, is this an official work claim? Is this a work, workman's comp? And then I realized that I had been busted. <laughs> I told him, oh, that was, that was my lunch hour and I was doing, I hurt myself on my lunch hour. But I realized that I had been cheating that company. I had been cheating myself, that I didn't really care about that job and that it was um, not the perfect job that I thought it was because here I was being paid and I was only doing half the work. And I realized that I didn't want to go through my life with uh, easy jobs like that. I wanted to follow my passion. So I, I quit and I decided I was going to do that thing about aquaculture in the oceans. And I applied to lots of different graduate schools. I got accepted by seven different, you know, great schools in the U.S. But there was one that's that kind of stuck out. You know, you're looking for going beyond the admissions forms at Scripps Institute or University of Miami or University of Washington or um, um, University of Hawaii or MIT. All, all of these were Woods Hole. They're all great schools. But at Texas A&M, I got a personal letter from a professor and it touched me. And somehow I knew that's where I belonged. And at the same time, I started reading whatever I could find on aquaculture. And it turned out that that professor was a prolific um, researcher. And he had a team doing lots of great, interesting stuff published in a proceedings called the World Mariculture Society. What was that professor's name? Do you remember? His name was Kirk Strawn. He's passed away, but he was one of my first mentors. And I'd like to say that in one's life, we come across mentors that have a profound influence on the direction of our careers, and they are to be treasured. And I've been fortunate to have several mentors at different stages of my life, and I'm forever grateful to them. And I hope that I have been or can be a mentor to others as, as we go along and we we try to carry it forward. But um, that led me to uh, choose Texas A&M. And as it turned out, Dr. Strawn had a research assistantship uh, available where the other graduate student had dropped out at the last minute. And there was a, a project that needed someone there. So I, he asked, are you familiar with aquaculture? Do you know? Do you, or, or, because this would require that you immediately get into research, which is field research, which is atypical. Normally in graduate school, you take classes, you, you do a, a year of work, and you write a proposal, and then you go do that research. In this case, I was jumping right into the research. Wow. And the only thing I had done was maintain an aquarium of those uh, little creatures that I caught from Little Talbot Island. And I just loved the ocean. But I guess another characteristic is that I closed my eyes and dove in. And that has been another thing that I would say about one's career is to take these big challenges and to, and to um, not 
not be so worried about your ability to accomplish them and just go dive in and do it. And, and it was really uh, just a fantastic experience. I had no money. I went to graduate school in a post office Jeep that I bought in an auction. I slept on the floor of the lab. I had no uh, money for a hotel and there were no apartments that I could afford. And for weeks I slept on the floor and every, every day I would go by the little convenience store and check the classified ads and hoping for a garage apartment or something. And one day I went to the convenience store and the clerk behind the counter said, I noticed you're checking the ads every day. Check it today. There's a garage apartment. <laughs> there was for $150 a month. And I didn't have to sleep on the floor anymore. And on I went and, um, and it, it was a fascinating research. And even though I was just um, a master's degree student and Dr. Strawn had several PhD students, he invited me to go to the World Mariculture Society annual meeting, the next one, which was in Costa Rica, to present the results of my research. Wow. And I did my master's on marine fish. And boy, I was terrified of talking to all these professional people. And um, I was just a brand new aquaculture guy. I had about six months under my belt. And, and I had another very good friend. I'll, I'll call him another mentor, more of a personal mentor. Uh, I used to be an oarsman in college, one of those guys that rose in the eight-man shells. And this guy was an oarsman from Harvard and Columbia and Cambridge. And he also was a uh, an architect who built hotels around the world. And I, I told him, I'm really worried about giving this talk at, the, uh, at this meeting with all these professionals. And he said, George, let me see if I can understand this. You're nervous about talking to fish farmers? But <laughs> <laughs> well, when you put it that way. Yeah. All of a sudden, uh, I wasn't a bit nervous anymore. Even though the guy that went before me, a very good friend named Don Leitner, who, who became the world authority on shrimp diseases at the beginning of his career way back then, he had a severe stuttering problem. And the poor guy had a terrible time getting through his presentation and uh, made me a little nervous just to listen to him. And, and then uh, back in those days, you put slides in the projector. And they put my slides in upside down. And as I was walking up, the projectionist said, stall them. And I thought, oh, God. Uh, but it, it went well. And I ended up getting the second best paper award. Hey, there you go. Uh, wow. Uh, yeah. And it was a lot of fun. And afterwards, I met some really amazing aquaculture people like um, Dr. Strawn introduced me to Lauren Donaldson, who was breeding trout back then, the Donaldson strain. And, and um, lots of other uh, great names in aquaculture were there. And I was so um, excited about the World Aquaculture, well, World Mariculture Society at that time, it later changed its, its name to World Aquaculture Society, that ultimately I decided I would try to join the board and give back time as a volunteer. So in 1990, I did that. And for several years, I was a board member and then a secretary and then a treasurer and ultimately a president. And I think that's an important, another important lesson is 
when we benefit from things, you know, like I've benefited from mentors, I've benefited from great uh, uh, leaders of the industry who took a little time with me and shared their experience, try to give back a little. So I did that with the World Aquaculture Society and it was a really rewarding experience. There's so many different directions to go with this conversation. Um, I think before I go further about the World Aquaculture Society, I wanna go back to that um, Paul Ehrlich story about the starvation in the world by the year 2000. Um, it turns out that there was an economist in the same time period named Julian Simon, who looked at Ehrlich's projections and he looked at all the historic data and he said, you know, the prices of all the commodities, everything that's not government uh, related or government controlled are all coming down. That would not indicate any shortage. That would not indicate any impending doom. In fact, it looks like everything is getting better. The knock, education knock on wood. is getting better. Yeah. People are living longer lives. Fetal mortality is less. The, by almost every measure, uh, life is getting better and better. And so he tried to talk to Paul Ehrlich about it, and he ended up having to talk to him by taking a full-page ad in the New York Times, or maybe it was the Wall Street Journal, challenging Ehrlich to a bet. He said, you pick any three commodities, anything that is not government-regulated, and I will bet you $10,000 that in 10 years' time, they are reduced in cost, not higher in cost. We're not facing shortages and starvation. Life is getting better. And Ehrlich said, it's like taking candy from a baby. I'll accept your bet. And of course, he lost. And, and so it goes back to something my grandmother taught me when I was a little boy. She said, when I was worried about some of these things we were hearing about the world coming to an end and gloom and doom. She had been born around the turn of the century and she had lived through, you know, two world wars, uh, electrical power and coming and lighting and, you know, man on the moon and all these things. And she said, don't underestimate the power of human ingenuity. And so I think it's so true. You know, it's easy to see the glass half empty and think of all the ways that we're going to perish as a society and as a civilization. But if you look at it the other way, with the glass half full and all the capabilities we have to make the world a better place and to use our knowledge to um, advance the status of society, I think Julian Simon had it right, and so did my grandmother. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a great lesson for kind of what we're all going through right now. You know, yes. hopefully we can have some Definitely. some people looking through that lens, and you know, we're really counting on human ingenuity to help us figure out what we need to do to get out of this. And as we mentioned in one of our previous episodes, this is an opportunity for us to, moving forward in the future, continue to do the right things for and not just ourselves and humans and and uh, the, the global health of the people, but also for the health of the planet and the environment as well. Absolutely. And there's, you know, tremendous uh, optimistic uh, uh, visions of the future that we can all, we can all consider and we can all be part of. I remember when I was um, uh, in college and trying to think about a career and thinking of these ideas, 
and you know, in that stage when I was trying to select which graduate school to go to and which species to work with, I was worried that maybe we already knew everything. Maybe I shouldn't go into trout because everything is known. And here we are 40 years later, and there's, there's more to learn than there's ever been. You know, it seems like the learning opportunities and the, the uh, horizons for advancement have just expanded. They haven't closed because we know everything about X, Y, and Z now. No, we, it only grows in the opportunities. So I would say- I think aquaculture is actually, I don't mean to interrupt you, but that thought just kind of sparked this. I feel like aquaculture is is a really innovative industry compared to some of the other farmed proteins in that a lot of them tend to have the mentality of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I think with aquaculture, we see new innovations happening in other industries and we tend to say, well, how can we use that in fish farming? And, you know, you've seen- some pretty giant leaps in, in technology and advancements in aquaculture that you may not have seen as much in some of the other proteins that are going on that mentality of, well, we got this figured out, it's working, so you know we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And that's what I've seen, at least. I don't know if you feel differently about that. Yeah, well, I, I actually think that when we look at the macro trends and the, you know, the going back to the population increase, that, that, that story is still going on. And now we're facing having... 10 billion people by the year 2050 and the food demands are expected to increase by we need to produce twice as much food and about 50 percent more protein because now the world is getting much more prosperous and people want to enjoy protein diets not just rice or beans and that means we have to produce a lot more crops to feed to animals and Already we're having huge issues with climate change and we're having problems with obesity and diabetes, heart disease, and other nutrition-related chronic diseases. Our whole food system has to transform because the current system isn't scalable. We don't have enough land to produce double what we're doing now by taking twice as much farmland. There isn't that much land. There isn't that much fresh water. We have to find ways of doing it to produce more with less resources. And that opens up huge opportunities for aquaculture. And there have been prestigious studies like the um, EAT report by the Lancet Commission that says for the health of the planet and for the health of people, here are the foods we need to pull back on. They're too resource intensive, like beef, for example. And here are the ones we need to increase because they're good for people and they're more sustainable. And aquaculture and seafood falls into that category. So it's a really bright future for for aquaculture. Yeah. So let's get back to your story. You were, I think, where you where we got off on that little tangent. You were president of WAS, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess we could fast forward toward the, um, during that time, whenever a person reached the point of being president of World Aquaculture Society, their job that year was to organize the annual meeting. And when my term came, it as it happened, the organization, the board had decided they would like to have the first meeting in Asia that just happened to be my the, when my term as president arose. So 
in 27 years of having uh, meetings, this was the first time for WAS to try to go to Asia for a meeting in Bangkok. So I, I flew over to Bangkok. I met the head of the Department of Fisheries, a gentleman named Dr. Pladprasap. He's a very powerful man. The uh, fisheries department had something like 5,000 um, employees. And the fisheries in Thailand was exporting maybe $4 billion worth of production. And um, he said, what can, I, what can I help you with? And I said, oh, well, if, if you'll help us co-sponsor this meeting, we'll need some help finding the venue. You know, where are we going to have it? So I went and looked at various venues. They were all so expensive. So I came back to Dr. Plod Prasap and said, you know, if we do it at the Queen Syracuse Convention Center, it's a beautiful spot, but it's so expensive, we're going to have to raise the registration fees for the, you know, for the participants. And Dr. Plod said, oh, but the Thai farmers are very poor. And we would actually like them all to come in instead of for $400, we'd like them to come in for $40. And of course, we're going to have to give them free lunch. And I thought, oh my gosh, how are we going to afford it? Then we'll have to have a big trade show. And then I went around and realized that the equipment suppliers in Asia were mainly small backyard village to village vendors and that farmers didn't usually buy their equipment from uh, multinational groups. There were a few big companies, but not enough to fund a major trade show. And then I realized that out of the 27 years of the organization, I might be the one president that bankrupts it. <laughs> so how in the world is this going to work? Is maybe we should take the meeting back to the U.S. because this is not going to... we will have much higher costs than revenue. And that's the main uh, supply of revenue for WAF. And then it dawned on me that the main companies that um, generate revenue in Thailand are the processing plants and the exporters. That $4 billion of seafood exports was the key. So I had a meeting with Dr. Plod just before I left. I wasn't sleeping at night. I was really concerned. And I said, could we, could we add a seafood show? And Dr. Lin, the head of the CP group, was in the meeting, and he said, we aquaculture people contribute to an export promotion fund uh, a, certain, a certain percentage of the cost of every export goes into this fund, but to our knowledge, we've never used it. And Dr. Plod placed a call to the Department of Commerce, and he got an immediate um, answer. Yes, we can give you 20 million baht which I believe was six or $800,000 for the conference, if you'll do a trade show, if you do a seafood trade show. So we went from being a bankrupt cost to probably one of the most elaborate, biggest uh, events ever, and a great introduction to of the World Aquaculture Society to Asia. We established the Asia Pacific chapter. It was just... Um, a wonderful event. But one, one remarkable thing happened there during that time period, that was in 1996. In 1995, the Supreme Court of India uh, judged on a case about shrimp farming, and they actually ruled against the shrimp farming industry, saying that all the shrimp farms within a certain distance of the high tide mark needed to be bulldozed under, the workers needed to be uh, paid two years back wages, and basically 
shrimp farming uh, was not sustainable and the environmental movement won that challenge. And it was a terrifying blow that shook the whole aquaculture world that maybe, maybe aquaculture is not a sustainable business and we need to back away from it. And so during the same time period, there was a guy who was very critical of the World Aquaculture Society. His name was Andy Davlin. He wrote the Davlin newsletter. And every year he would write a scathing report about how the World Aquaculture Society was not commercial enough. It wasn't dealing with these big commercial issues like the Supreme Court ruling. It was an academic group. And for some reason, he forgot to send the letter, the scathing le letter to me when I was president. But I saw him at that Bangkok meeting, and as I was in the buffet line, I invited him to join me for breakfast along with the next president. I said, I think you ought to meet the next president so you know who you're writing your letter to because you miss me. <laughs> and we sat down, and Andrew Davlin started on his uh, tirade about uh, how WAS was not a trade association. And the, the president-elect was uh, a guy named... Dr. Merrill Broussard, and he later became uh, the head of the, U of the USDA uh, aquaculture program in the United States. But he pointed out to Andy that what he was referring to was a trade association. And then many commodities in the US, like pork and poultry, have academic organizations, but they also have accompanying trade associations. And if he's so keen on needing this, wanting this commercial aspect, why doesn't he start a trade association? And a big light went off in my head and I realized that's what's needed. So I said, Andy, I will, as the outgoing president, I'll set up a discussion at the next meeting in Seattle in 1997, and we'll have a discussion about this idea of a trade association. And so, during that, those intervening months, I wrote letters, emails to lots of colleagues and asked them what they thought, invited them to join the discussion. And at, the, at that meeting in Seattle, we had 55 people. Andy made his pitch about the need for this organization to have one voice to represent commercial aquaculture, that it was being accused of lots of exaggerated claims by the conservation movement and there was no one to tell the aquaculture side of the story. And we went around the room one by one, everyone commented, and there was unanimous agreement. And then the gentleman next to me, who was Dr. Plod Prasop, remember him, he was the director of fisheries in Thailand from that previous meeting in Bangkok. He stood up and he said, uh, gentlemen, this has been a great discussion, um, but the meeting is about to draw to an end. And we're all going to go about our business and nothing's going to happen. So I would like to make a motion. I move that we form an organizing committee to develop a plan for this new trade association. And I would like to move that Dr. Chamberlain chair the committee. I was sitting right next to him and I was, had been seven years working as a volunteer for the World Aquaculture Society and I was finally off the hook as of the end of that meeting in Seattle. And I did not <laughs> relish the idea of more time. So I said, I stood up and I said, I'd be willing to help, but only if there are others who join in. This is not a, a one-man show. 
And so Andy, Bill Herzig of Red Lobster, the Darden Restaurants Group, um, Peter Jacobson, Jim Heeren, uh, a lot of people who ultimately became board members of the Global Aquaculture Alliance volunteered, 10 of them. And a month later, we met in Orlando at the Darden Restaurants headquarters. Uh, Lee Wedig of the National Fisheries Institute was one of those members. And together we came up with the name. We knew we wanted to be worldwide, but the World Aquaculture Alliance already had the word world. So we said global. Aquaculture, we definitely had to have in it. Now we've got global aquaculture. We couldn't use society because they already used it. And we wanted to unify the aquaculture world. So we said alliance, global aquaculture alliance. And then we developed some bylaws. And then a month later, we went and pitched our idea at the first shrimp farming conference that was happening in the world. And it happened to be in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. And 20 people agreed to be founding members, $10,000 each. And we, in, and so a month later we incorporated. So in a matter of three months, we went from a concept to a budding little organization. And it was all based on a kind of an activist spirit. Nobody was, nobody was getting paid anything. Everybody was volunteering their own time, their own travel and committing funds from their companies because we thought it was the right thing to do. We thought aquaculture really did have a future and aquaculture, if it was done right, could have a brilliant future. So let's, um, let's begin and let's start with shrimp, but with the idea that we would ultimately be working on all species and all geographies. And of course we terribly underestimated the workload and the challenge that lied, that laid ahead, but it was, um, you know, I think Margaret Mead said something like, uh, never underestimate the, the power of a small committed group to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever does. And, and that's what it comes down I to. I love that quote. If you have a small group that really is determined and committed and trusts each other, you can move mountains. And that's, that's, in the culture of GAA and still is the culture of GAA. So I should pause. I've just been in a monologue for a long time and uh, probably everybody's asleep by now. No, no, no. We, we have, <laughs> no, we have about 15 all. minutes left uh, before we got to get going. Cause we all have other, other calls we got to get on and stuff. But so you've been president now for how long of GAA? Uh, since the beginning, so since 97, so uh, what is that, 23 years? Yeah. 23. So what is on the horizon? What's, you know, what's the what's the plan moving forward for you? Um, I think that GAA has a lot of, uh, a lot of opportunity to continue to grow and unify. I'm excited about our upcoming virtual goal conference and the ability to link with people around the world. Um, by making it virtual, we can reduce the cost to virtually nothing so that um, uh, we, can, we can hopefully have thousands of people um, attending the conference. And, um, 
and we're beginning to move into the fishing vessel standards and the wild capture area, I think the opportunity is to try to link all seafood, whether it's farmed or wild caught, into one, um, uh, one program that works towards sustainable production and you know, transforming this, the food supply, produce, producing very healthy, uh, high quality, um, sustainable foods for this, this growing population. So there's, there's enormous opportunities for, for GAA to continue to grow on multiple fronts on the, on the education front on, uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done beyond certification, either with the leading edge of aquaculture on the innovation and uh, new technology side of things, but also in the improver space, mm -hmm. you know, where we have a lot of traditional farms that are um, consist of one or two ponds operated by a small, uh, small company or a family. And how can we bring them into mainstream and help them upgrade their techniques and become more sustainable? Well, we're going to have to do it by, by helping them form into clusters and, and clusters into neighborhoods and neighborhoods into zones. And with that kind of a structure, then we can introduce improved technologies, disease monitoring, carrying capacity monitoring, education, training. Um, these are all heavy lifts and they're going to take decades, mm -hmm. but that's the point. There's a tremendous opportunity for improvement and uh, improving the livelihoods of people, improving the food for society, improving the, the sustainability of our planet. I think those are all, all uh, part of the mission of, of GAA and all the other associations that I hope we can uh, link with and and pull together. Great. So no plans to retire anytime soon then it sounds like. <laughs> uh well as you 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 probably know I've I've for most of my career I've actually done GAA in addition to another job. So um uh going way back I I used to work with Texas A&M as um a researcher and an extension aquaculture specialist. Uh, that was just a wonderful career where I, as a researcher, you know, you learn the power of the scientific method and you work with some great professors and uh, very unselfish people who give their lives and their careers to help students improve themselves. And I, I got my PhD and then I, I, um, I took a job with the extension service and the, uh, one of the entomologists, the insect specialists, um, took me under his wing and he said, George, um, one of the first things you need to do as an extension specialist is write a newsletter. Just write a couple page newsletter and send it out to the hundred people, you know, and let them know that they can inform others. Uh, and it's free. So I wrote my newsletter, sent it out and, and the hundred and the next issue became 200 and the 200 became 400 and then 800 and then a thousand and then 2000. And, and pretty soon it was going to aqua aquaculture people all around the world. And I started feeling this intimate connection with colleagues, um, 
producing various species in various parts of the world. And I realized that I just, I just loved that. I loved the fact that entrepreneurs in aquaculture were putting their chips on the table. They were risking their livelihoods based on their own wit and know-how and capability. And um, I thought that's the true test is uh, getting into the private sector and, um, and making it work. And so um, after a stint with Ralston Purina, where I was in charge of the feed business around in various countries where they operated for nine years, and then with Monsanto, where I was in charge of their kind of their new technology business in aquaculture. I eventually joined with a partner, Ken Morrison, another great mentor, and we started a shrimp farm in Malaysia and ultimately uh, did another project in Brunei. Then we bought the shrimp breeding company and farm in Hawaii and, um, and sold shrimp broodstock around the world, which is been another amazing opportunity to go visit customers in various parts of the world. So I've, I've traveled heavily for 30 years and it's just been a amazing experience to meet uh, aquaculture people around the world and, and um, to realize that we're all, we're all the same. We're all, uh, people are basically the same. We're, they're, they're good and they're genuine and they're friendly and, um, and they're all t trying to do the right thing and, and improve. And it's, uh, it's been a great adventure and a great uh, rewarding experience for me. I, I don't regret a day of it and it's never even felt like a job. It's felt like I'm on some National Geographic tour. <laughs> Somebody's paying me to go or I'm paying them to go on some tour. Maybe it's to <laughs> Iceland or maybe it's to uh, New Zealand or, or China or, or Singapore. But um, it's just been a fascinating ride. And, uh, and it's, I've been fortunate to have gotten on that ride sort of at the, at the bottom end of the curve when aquaculture was just taking off and, sort of rode that wave as, as the industry has grown. And it's been a remarkable uh, perspective to see how this, how this business has changed and morphed so rapidly and, um, uh, and become a, you know, going, going from a, a tiny little um, concept that produced nearly nothing to something that's producing more than half of the world's seafood now and is only going to continue to grow faster and faster. So it's, it's a great field and, uh, um, I've, I've really enjoyed, uh, every bit of it. Awesome. Well, George, we're just about out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, we really appreciate it. We were lucky enough that you're stuck at home and not traveling right now. So we could finally pin oh, you down good. for, for a conversation. Yes. So, That's um, actually been nice. Too. Real, real quick. Have some uh, one, final piece of advice that you would give to someone who's just starting out their career before we have to sign off, um, someone who might be just starting out their career in the seafood industry, what is one quick piece of advice that you would give them? I would 
follow your passion. I would, I would think of something that you really love to do, some aspect. Um, you know, there's so many aspects of aquaculture, from the research areas, from the whole value chain, from diagnostics and disease control, the breeding, hatchery, grow out, feeds, processing, all sorts of product forms, marketing. And in each of those are all the different species groups and geographies. But pick something you like and that you're passionate about. And as they say, you'll never work a day in your life. It's just, um, it becomes uh, a joy. That was um, a hard lesson I learned when I took that misstep in the health department at the beginning of my career. But it was actually the best thing that ever happened to me. There you go. I learned I'm, I can't, um, yep. I'm not one who can, can work um, in a job that I have no, no heart for. And I, I suspect everyone's that way. The irony is that it may seem like the great job because you're not really having to work very hard, but that actually cheats yourself of your creativity and your, and your ambition. Yeah. And your full potential. Awesome. So yeah, follow your heart. I love and it. And then, uh, Sunday we'll circle back and talk about the joys of travel and, uh, and maybe some of the unusual things that included stuff like, uh, getting shot at, <laughs> um, getting, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, emergency landings, uh, uh, canoe trips on, uh, with native peoples on, you know, beautiful secluded rivers. And uh, I had just so many fascinating things. Yeah. We'll have to have you on again to just tell, tell some of your stories. <laughs> I would be I'm pretty sure you can too. use again. George can buy a jet with his frequent flyer miles. All right? <laughs> <laughs> a whole fleet. All right. Again, thank you so much, George, for joining us. You know, we, we, we miss seeing you in the office. We miss seeing each other in the office, but it's great that we're able to connect like this and get you on the show. We've been meaning to get you on for quite a while. So we really appreciate it. And I hope that you and your family are doing great and um, we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thank you so much, Sean. Thanks, Justin and Maddie. Great talking Thanks, to you. Thanks, George. Thank you, George. Thanks for taking the time with us. You bet. Folks, that was our conversation with George Chamberlain, Dr. George Chamberlain. I hope you guys enjoyed it as always, and I hope you learned something. What do you guys have to say about this conversation? What do, you, what do you what did you think? What stood out to you? I thought that George had a lot of wisdom, not just about his career path and his stories, but also just like in his musings about the future of the aquaculture industry as a whole. So hopefully we can get him back on the show to talk about that and like where he sees the industry going because he is such a visionary and has so many amazing ideas and it would be nice to pick his brain about that too. Yeah, this could have been episode one of, of many, the, the many stories and experiences of Dr. George Chamberlain for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I'm sure we'll have him on again. Tell some more fun little, fun little stories. Um, I like how he mentioned how important it is to not think too hard about something if you have some self-doubt and just dive right into it. And it's exactly what he did with this conversation. As soon as we welcomed him onto the show, he just dove right into it. And if you don't know George personally, I mean, that's that's him. He's not afraid to just dive right into a conversation and, and let you know what he, uh, what he thinks and feels and what his perspective is. And I think that's pretty well respected throughout the entire industry. I think George is a very, very well-known 
and like I said, well-respected figure in the seafood industry. And we're lucky to have him in the company with us and in our office as much as well, I, I would say every day, but he's traveling. He travels all the time. But um, <laughs> it's nice to, you know, have uh, someone with such experience and wisdom in contact with us regularly. So we appreciate him coming on. We appreciate you for supporting us. If you want to get in contact with us, ask Justin. Yeah, follow us on social at AquademiaPod. That's our Twitter handle. Or send us an email at podcast at aquaculturealliance.org. And please make sure to subscribe to us on whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave a review and a rating. Yeah, and if you know anyone in the industry who would be good for our career pathways bit that we do, uh, send along their information and we'll see if there's a fit. Absolutely. So until next time, thank you guys again so much for listening and we will talk to you later. Bye. Ciao.